1: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Monitor Monday. We start a new Monday with a new sense of hope and a new administration, one that's focused on getting the deadly virus under control. Nonetheless, President Biden is saying that death toll from the deadly coronavirus could reach 500,000 in February. In the meantime, the president signed a number of executive orders last week to help curb the virus spread. We'll have more on COVID-19 for the frontline physician, Dr. John Fogle. He returns to the broadcast to report on our lead story, The Mask Mandate. In other news this morning, you're going to hear from Matthew Albright, Nicole Emanuel, David Glazer, and Ed Roach. We begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored
0: by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr.
2: Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. Once again, I have some rapid-fire updates for you. First, CMS released the updated national coverage rules for MitraClip. If you do those at your facility, you should download the new rules and make sure that you're compliant. They also released a decision memo for coverage of blood-based screening for colon cancer. It's a funny one because they approved coverage for the test, but there are no FDA-approved products that meet their guidelines. Next, CMS and the Office of the Inspector General got into a bit of a spat last week. The OIG looked at how CMS uses CERT data to determine who to audit and found that CMS was not auditing the providers with the most errors, potentially paying out billions improperly. Well, CMS disagreed with the findings of the OIG, stating that the OIG methods were misleading and that CMS previously used CERT data for that purpose and found that it was ineffective. And not surprisingly, the OIG defended their conclusions. It's really fun when siblings fight, isn't it? Next, as I reported a couple weeks ago, all of the COVID waivers have been extended, including the three-day admission requirement for SNF coverage. Well, in last week's MLN Connects from CMS, one of their feature articles was pointing out that a recent OIG report found that many SNFs' admissions did not have that required three-day inpatient admission and were improperly paid. And they reminded providers of the requirement for that three-day stay. Well, first, this OIG report was issued two years ago, so this is hardly recent. And that requirement, as you know, is, it's waived now. Now, why would they add to the confusion by publishing this now? And why not at least a few words about the current waiver? Sometimes it seems at CMS that one hand is not talking to the other. Next, the Government Accountability Office released a report late last week on rural hospital closures, and the numbers were staggering. When a community loses a hospital, the residents of that area lose not only the hospital, but access to outpatient care. The number of physicians in the community dropped by 20%, and patients had to drive an average of 24 miles to access emergency care, and over 44 miles to receive drug or alcohol treatment. Now, I know we've talked here about the plight of rural hospitals. Let's hope this report gets Congress talking and acting. And finally, we talk a lot about DRGs, CCs, and MCs, but few of us can find the actual payment that a hospital will get. Well, I am about to give you the ability to do it yourself. CMS just released an online version of the inpatient pricer. If you know the DRG, and you know your hospital provider number, you can now look up the expected payment. Just head over to webpricer.cms.gov and pick the inpatient PPS Pricer. If you're an IRF and you know the case mix group, you can look up your payment too. But be aware this is just an estimated payment. I've already found some errors, but at least it's close to being correct. Have fun with it. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice
1: President of R1RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Monday RAC report is Healthcare Attorney Nicole Emanuel. And good morning, Nicole.
3: Good morning, hello, and happy RAC Monitor Monday. The racks are on attack. The COVID pause on RAC audits is lifted. Well, we know the COVID audit pause has been lifted since August 2020, but never have I ever seen CMS view out so many new RAC topics in one month of a new year. Recovery audit contractors, or RACs, will soon be auditing positron emission tomography or PET scans for initial treatment strategy in oncologic conditions for compliance with medical necessity and documentation requirements. PET scans detect early signs of cancer, heart disease, and brain disorders. An injectable radioactive tracer detects disease cells. A combination PET CT scan produces 3D images for a more accurate diagnosis. According to CMS's RAC audit topics, PET for initial treatment strategy in oncologic conditions, medical necessity, and documentation requirements will be reviewed as of January 5, 2021. CM, the PET scan audits will be for outpatient hospital and professional service reviews. CMS added additional 2021 audit targets to the approved list. For example, air ambulance will be checked for medical necessity and documentation requirements. This will be a complex review examining rotary wing helicopter aircraft claims to determine if the air ambulance transport was reasonable and medically necessary, as well as whether or not documentation requirements have been met. And when you're talking about air ambulance, those reimbursement rates can get quite pricey. Another RAC audit target is hospice for continuous home care, medical necessity and documentation requirements, and also ambulance ground transport subject to SNF consolidated billing. Upcoming HHS Secretary Xavier Becerra plans to get his new tenure underway quickly once he is confirmed, if he is confirmed. In False Claims Act news, Medicare audits of STEMs have ramped up across the country. A spinal clinic in Texas agreed to pay approximately $330,000 to settle a False Claims Act allegation for allegedly billing Medicare improperly for electroacupuncture device neurostimulators. CMS claims that Medicare does not reimburse for acupuncture or for the acupuncture devices such as PSTEM, nor does Medicare reimburse for pestim as a neurostimulator or as an implantation of neurostimulator electrodes. Finally, is your staff getting medical records to consumers requesting their records quickly enough? Right to access to healthcare records is yet another potential risk for all providers, especially hospitals due to their size. Recently, a hospital system agreed to pay $200,000 to settle potential violations of the HIPAA Privacy Rule's right of access standard. This is HHS's Office for Civil Rights 14th settlement under the right of access initiative. The complaints were that one person alleged she requested medical records in December 2017 and did not receive them until May 2018, so a five-month lag. In the second complaint, a person asked for an electronic copy of his records in September 2019, and they weren't sent to him until February 2020, which is only a few months difference. So be sure to look and see whether your document requests are being complied with quickly. And that's it for the rack Report. Back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks, Nicole. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner at the law firm of practice. And if you're like hundreds of others who value Nicole's reporting on audits, be sure to subscribe to the Auditor Monitor. And coming up in about 10 and a half minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from Matthew Albright, David Glazer, Ed Roach, and Dr. John Fogel, who's standing by to report our lead story. This is Monday. It's January the 25th, and you're listening to a live edition of Monitor Monday. Stand by.
0: There is a great deal of pressure to prevent readmissions, but hospital readmissions can have a myriad of causes, from patients being sent home prematurely, to patients being unable to afford their medications, to the home care team being unable to deliver needed equipment in a timely manner. Dedicated teams put much effort into preventing readmissions, yet those efforts are often counterproductive and ineffective. During an upcoming RAC Monitor webcast, Dr. Ronald Hirsch will show you and your team how to target interventions to prevent readmissions effectively and compliantly. Register now to attend Readmissions Prevention. Learn compliance strategies to avoid penalties. That webcast is Thursday, February 4th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern.
1: Here now with the Modern Money Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glaser. And David, what can be risky this morning? Well, Chuck, it's the danger of mail during the time of COVID. And no,
4: I'm not talking about the danger of being male, although it does seem that is a source of increased risk. Instead, I'm discussing materials sent through the U.S. Postal Service. I'm currently dealing with a very upset assistant United States attorney. Right before the new year, she sent a civil investigative demand, you can think of it as like a subpoena, via registered mail to one of my clients. That client was in the midst of quite the COVID surge at the time. In fact, their administrative offices were being used to provide patient care. One person went in weekly to check the mail. It was about two weeks after the CID was sent before the assistant recognized its significance. Some of that time was time in the delayed mail, and I'm not sure how much of it was the the document waiting in a pile, but the response time in the CID was short to begin with. And the bottom line is I received it literally two days before the response was due. I immediately called the government lawyers to request an extension. I didn't think it would be an issue, but I was wrong. Instead, I took a fair amount of heat for having not responded more swiftly. So this got the investigation off on the wrong foot. And it's a lesson that should be important for everyone here. So it's important to have a process in place to identify important mail relatively quickly even during the pandemic. Here, the fact that the letter was certified was a good clue of its importance. Training whoever is receiving the mail to flag anything that comes in priority or certified is a good idea. Similarly, any correspondent that has a bird on it, and when I say a bird, I'm referring to the football helmet-like emblem of the Department of Health and Human Services, not some cute sticker from the Audubon Society, should get flagged for special attention. The same is true if the envelope has a return address from any government agency. You may want the person to take a picture of it with their phone and email it to some centralized smart mail opener. So the government is still conducting investigations during the time of COVID. It's reasonable to ask for extension and most government officials will grant them. So I've certainly had some mixed experiences. One lawyer recently couldn't understand why my client couldn't just walk down the hall to grab the documents that the government had been requesting. The government lawyer didn't seem to recognize the fact that literally no one involved in the case was in an office. But the request for an extension is likely to be better received if it's made quickly. Now, we have a variety of government officials who listen to this broadcast. And to you, I'd like to make a request use the telephone and email more than you normally would. If you're sending something through the snail mail, call as well. I was assisting a client with a Medicaid audit recently, and the auditor stressed the need for communicating with her exclusively electronically. Then, inexplicably, she sent every communication to me via snail mail. She knew that despite the fact that we'd talked about the fact that we were both working from home and she made it abundantly clear everything to her absolutely had to be electronic. But for some reason, the same standard didn't apply to her. She sent it by mail. She did, however, express frustration at the slow speed of the response because I didn't get her initial letter. So if you'd like to reach out to someone in the healthcare system right now, phone or email are definitely the way to go. And I'd ask you to keep in mind that some healthcare organizations have converted literally every square inch into patient treatment space. Administrative tasks that are normally simple can be challenging right now. So when it comes to dealing with the mail, let's do what Simon says.
5: You just slip out the back, Jack.
4: Make a new plan, Stan. Preferably one that doesn't require you to I'll
5: hop on the bus, Gus. You don't need to discuss much. Just drop off the key
4: and get yourself free. That way, if you get a letter from the government, you're likely to Keep yourself free. Back to you,
1: Chuck. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fedrickson Byron in downtown Minneapolis. We begin a new series here on Monitor Money. It's called CyberWatch, featuring Rack Monitor investigative reporter Ed Roach. Ed, what's your first series about?
6: Oh, we're going to do some vaccinations. New York City is supposed to be one of the most advanced data processing centers in the world. Wall Street, banking, insurance, all of these sectors are heavy users of computing systems. One would think that when it comes to IT, the Big Apple would shine, but that's not what's happening now. The hasty and ill-planned efforts to vaccinate New Yorkers has turned into a nightmare. Nothing seems to work. The New York City Health Department set up a vaccine finder website designed to show the places where one can be vaccinated. There is a map display and list of locations, each with a schedule an appointment button. Sounds easy, right? The only problem is that it doesn't seem to work well. Each vaccination location is different. Each requires one to fill out a unique Lengthy questionnaire about one's eligibility, name, address, date of birth, email, sex, race, what type of work you do, and so on. Many require you to register and get a login and password. Every single one I tried would get to the stage where the system was going to send a verification email as confirmation of the login, then nothing happened. All the data lost, all the effort wasted. Try again. Reenter all the data. Same result. Sometimes you can get to the last step, which is schedule an appointment. Then, guess what? No appointments are available, even if you look out as far as June. One wonders why a site asks for so much information or is listed at all if there are zero appointments available. So you go to another location, Queens, the Bronx, Brooklyn, places I've never heard of. Go through the same thing again, repeat, zilch. As of last week, New York City had 793,000 vaccinations available, but had used up only 268,000. The remaining 525,000 were sitting in refrigerators. Now, there are rumors it is running out. The situation in New York is the result of lack of coordination between different information systems. Citizens are wasting hours and hours re-entering the same data over and over and finding out that nothing is available over and over. It is the result of using hundreds of information systems when actually there should be only one. What we see in New York City is not only a health disaster, but it is a cyber disaster. Hopefully, New York is not a model for other cities in the United States. But the news is not all bad. The world has administered 61 million doses of the vaccination, and the U.S. 21 million of those, about one-third of the world. So somehow things are working somewhere, and somehow New Yorkers will get it done. I'm sure its IT professionals are burning the midnight oil and will innovate. What can we learn from this? If Medicare can handle all of those claims and airline systems can handle all of those passenger reservations, then health informatics should be able to schedule and manage millions of vaccinations. First, we need to consolidate health information systems in the United States. Second, there should be a single scheduling system. It is going to take a gigantic investment and take time, but will be worth it. This has been CyberWatch. Back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks, Ed, very much. That was Rack Monitor Investigator Reporter Ed Roach. He was calling in live from New York. Ed is the Director of Scientific Intelligence for Barraclue, New York, LLC. And you can read Ed's first installment in our new series called CyberWatch in Thursday's Rack Monitor. Up next, Matthew Albright with our legislative update. The Monitor Monday
0: Legislative Update with Matthew Albright is sponsored by Salus. Cellus is a market-leading provider of claims cost and payment optimization solutions to price, pay, and explain health care claims.
1: Here now is Matthew Albright.
7: Thanks, Chuck. As we know, during the lame duck session, the Trump administration rushed through a number of last-minute health care regulations. Some of the rules passed in that rush, however, are now frozen and may either be altered or never see the light of day. For example, on the day before Biden's inauguration, the Trump administration released a proposed regulation that would amend the HIPAA privacy rule, making it easier to share personal health information between providers, payers and patients. That rule has now been frozen by the Biden administration as allowable under law to assess whether the new administration thinks that any changes should be made to the rule. On his first day in office, Biden also froze the regulation that finalized increases in 2022 rates for Medicare Advantage in Part D. He froze another Trump regulation that makes changes in how states can run their Affordable Care Act exchanges. The regulations passed in December that provided broad new exceptions to the Stark Law and the anti-kickback statute were also frozen. The Government Accountability Office found that these regulations violated the rule that major rules need 60 days after publication before they can take effect. Now, the new administration is not necessarily throwing all these rules out. Rather, it's taking some time to certainly review the regulations to see if they align with Biden's own policies. But they're also checking to make sure the regulations went through proper rulemaking, as seems to be the question with the now frozen Stark and anti-kickback regulations. In some cases, actually, a a rule may ultimately be strengthened by being frozen and reviewed because a regulation might later be challenged and overturned in court if the rulemaking process was improper or didn't meet certain timelines. So, like many things during this winter season, we're going to have to wait a few weeks for rules to become unfrozen or die uh, to know for sure which recent regulations are, are still alive. I'm gonna switch back now to the No Surprises Act that we've been exploring over the past few weeks and would like to address today one of the law's transparency requirements called the Advanced Explanation of Benefits or Advanced EOB. The law requires payers to send this Advanced EOB to their members every time the member makes an appointment for a healthcare service. The trick here is that this Advanced EOB sent by the payer is triggered when the patient makes the appointment with the provider. Within one to three days of the appointment, the provider is required to send to the payer a good-faith estimate of expected charges. With that information, the plan then creates an advanced EOB and sends it to the member before their appointment. The key here is that this applies to all providers, both in and out of network, and includes all appointments for all services for all patients. So this requirement is not really about balanced billing, but goes much further. When the law takes effect next January 2022, patients can now expect two EOBs every time they schedule a service with a healthcare provider, once within a few days of when they make the appointment, and another one after the service is performed. Chuck, HHS will be writing regulations on this advanced EOB process in the near future, so more to come, but it does appear that the provisions will add work for providers at the time of all of their appointments. Back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks, Matthew. That was former CMS official Matthew Albright. Matthew is the Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous. And coming up next, our exclusive report on COVID-19 from the front lines. This is Monitor Monday. It's a broadcast service of Rack Monitor. Standby. The 2021
0: e and guidelines have been turned inside out. Are you ready? Not only have the codes, guidelines, and documentation requirements changed drastically, but organizations will also be allowed to select the level of service based on time or medical decision-making. And, of course, the calculations for both will also be changing. To really make things interesting, these changes will only impact office visits to start, so there will be two sets of guidelines, one for office visits and one for hospitals or other settings. The 2021 Evaluation and Management Handbook is an ideal how-to resource that's time-tested and industry-trusted. Order your copy of the 2021 Evaluation and Management Essentials Handbook and approach the changes with confidence. Go to the Rack University Bookstore and order your copy today.
1: For a boots-on-the-ground perspective of the coronavirus, we check in now with frontline physician Dr. John Fogel. He's treating COVID patients in an alternative site hospital tucked away up in Rhode Island. So good morning, Dr. Fogel. What's it like on the front lines?
5: Thank you, Chuck. So far this month, I've worked a dozen shifts in the alternate site COVID-19 field hospital in Providence. Every patient has COVID. My PPE includes wearing a cap and a gown, two pairs of gloves, and an N95 mask covered by a surgical mask and then a face shield. Why do I need all this body armor given that I'm also fully vaccinated? because I can still transmit the disease. As of today, I'm the only vaccinated member in my family. I always wear a mask at home, avoid any direct contact with my wife and children, eat at a separate table well over six feet away, and frequently communicate via FaceTime or Zoom, even though we are under the same roof. While vaccines and strict adherence to public health measures remain our ticket out of this pandemic, conquering COVID fatigue and getting shots into arms remain major challenges. Hospitalizations and deaths from COVID-19 continue to spiral out of control. We are in for a long winter despite flattening case numbers in some states during the past week. We face two big questions. How will the new mutant strains affect us? And when will everybody who wants a vaccine get one? There've been 100 million confirmed COVID-19 cases worldwide since the start of the pandemic last March. Viruses mutate. SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, has probably mutated many, many thousands of times. Only a handful of new strains are alarming doctors and public health experts. One is the UK variant. It appears to be much more transmissible than the dominant strain in the United States. It's already here, and in more than 60 countries across the globe. Two other worrisome variants are from South Africa and Brazil. They, along with future mutant strains, will inevitably land here as well. Will the current vaccines protect us from getting sick from new virus strains? Scientists can only hope so. It's another reason why mask wearing may be part of our lives, both on a short and a long-term basis, even among vaccinated individuals. As for vaccine administration, For now, let's ignore those Americans who refuse or are skeptical of immunization. We'll have to tackle that issue through education and public health later. Instead, let's focus on all the individuals who want the vaccine but can't get one. Demand outstrips the supply, and the rollout has been a disaster to date. According to the CDC, as of last Thursday, less than half of the doses distributed to states had been administered. President Biden has vowed to change that. He's invoked the Defense Production Act to ramp up manufacturing and delivery of pandemic supplies. He's also signed key executive orders to reduce disease spread, including one requiring that masks be worn in airports and on certain modes of public transportation. Most importantly, he's pledged that a million Americans will be vaccinated in his first 100 days in office. This will be accomplished by increasing vaccine supply, creating more places for people to get vaccinated, and mobilizing additional medical teams to administer shots. This is an admirable goal, but a daunting task, despite the likelihood that one or more new vaccines will be approved by the FDA over the next month. Vaccinations prevent significant illness. They won't halt transmission until at least 70 to 80% of the U.S. population has been fully vaccinated. We're at less than 1%. Herd immunity may be unobtainable if too many Americans are unwilling to get a vaccine or wear a mask, especially given evolving coronavirus mutations. I believe that an annual COVID vaccination along with a flu shot will be part of our future. Chuck, I fear that I'm beginning to sound like a broken record. Vaccination combined with strict adherence to public health measures is still our only solution out of this pandemic. Whether you are vaccinated or not, practice good hand hygiene, avoid crowds, maintain social distancing of at least six feet, and wear a mask, and consider double masking or using an N95. Back to you, Chuck.
1: Thank you very much. That was Dr. John Fogel, the frontline physician caring for COVID-19 patients at Rhode Island's Alternative Site Field Hospital as a member of the Brown University Emergency Medical Department. Now's the time for the questions. David, we have time proud for one question. Let's go ahead and give it our best shot.
4: Dr. Hirsch, I apparently am not the only person who wants a little more information about that mitra clip question. Where can folks find that new information?
2: It's never easy to find CMS stuff, but I would go to Google and put in the following C A G00438R. That's the file number for the mitral valve. Repair proposals. C A G O O four three eight R. And for everyone who's looking for a repeat on that,
4: remember, as Chuck will tell you in a second, you can always listen to the uh, podcast later to get information you missed. Chuck, I'll turn it back to you.
1: Thanks, David, very much. And that is going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Monday. And we thank you so very much for being with us today. Special thanks to our outstanding panelists Matthew Albright, Nicole Emanuel, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hertz, Ed Roach, and Dr. John Fogle, who reported our lead story. And we thank you for being with us. And as David said, you can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do rate us, give us a review. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporter for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. And remember to wear your face mask, wash your hands, and practice social distancing. It is very, very dangerous out there. Thanks for being with us today. Monitor
0: Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.